BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are, we, we seem to be past the point of the protests in response to the death of George Floyd, where things were sort of, you know, kind of spiraling out of control day by day, either with the progress of the protests, with protests either veering into or being taken advantage of by looters in different cities, and then police sort of going out of control, either either in individual actions on the ground level or, you know, what was both captured and symbolized by that incident in Lafayette Park right outside the White House uh, two and a half weeks ago. And we are seeing an unfolding uh, range of, of policy responses to these protests, to what the protests are a reaction to. And it's important for me to say, it's not that the protests have stopped. They can, they continue on across the country, but they're clearly, they have, they have clearly uh, sort of modulated down over the last, I guess, week to 10 days. And uh, one of the things we're going to talk about today is that process of the, the, the fallout Everything that has happened over the last, I guess, it, is it, it's about exactly three weeks since, or no, 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 it's, it's more than three weeks. It's Memorial Day that right. George Floyd died, which was like May 25th, I think. I think that's right. Yep. And it's, and it's interesting to remember that that was the same day that that incident happened in Central Park in New York. With right. the with the with the birder, I always think clearly bird watchers rebranded at some point to birder, which I missed until <laughs> until this came up. In any case, um, it's interesting because my recollection, at least, was that the incident in Central Park, even though it turned on some of the same issues, obviously a much a much less grave thing that happened. No one was hurt, right? It was. Uh, and yet, my sense, at least, is that at, a, at the beginning, that got more media attention. And I don't think it was just because it's in New York. In any case, that was sort of the big story at first, and again, at least outside of, of, of Minneapolis. And then, obviously, things changed uh, very dramatically. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the still unfolding uh, range of... Uh, Antifa moral panics around 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 the country and 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 sort of mobilization of either just like brigades of yahoos who who get freaked out and want to kind of show up and fight off the invaders or in other cases uh, you know organized white supremacist groups who try to get in on the action 
And also, we're gonna we're gonna talk about the unfolding, still unfolding, uh, COVID epidemic around the United States, and also that we have presidential election coming up. So, David, what what do we what do we got? Yeah, well, before that, Josh, should we take care of a little bit of business? Uh, yes, yes, we dive into yes. The main topic? Well, have, David, have you been drinking Grady's during the I lockdown, have, or kind of yes, occasionally, I've, or something? I bought I bought a few uh, odd bottles of Grady's just from local shops around my neighborhood. And then I've also been brewing some cold brew, just using kind of coffee from the grocery store cafes around town too. So I've kind of been, uh, dabbling in multiple iced coffee formats and recipes. Well, okay. So that's good because now I have the, I have the copy right here. So I want to remind you that Grady's cold brew is here to help you stay cool and caffeinated this summer with their signature New Orleans style iced coffee. If you're still holed up at home, Grady's can bring the coffee shop to you. Their, their line of brew it yourself bean bags shipped directly to your door for less than a buck a cup. And the system couldn't be easier to use. Just add water to the pre-measured filter bags for gallons of completely customizable cold brew. No special equipment required, and shipping is free on all Grady's beanbag products. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And that, that is, we, uh, we're getting it sent out to all uh, members of the TPM staff, that beanbag system. And that's actually the, the, the system that my wife and I have been using during lockdown because, you know, it's, 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 uh, you easier know, to ship, right? Yeah, it's lighter. And... Yeah, it's much easier to ship because it's lighter. I mean, obviously, when you're when when uh, when you're getting the other things, you're 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 shipping a lot of water for not right. necessarily any good reason. So yeah, go out and get some Grady's uh, cold brew, and we'll get down to the doing the show. Absolutely. All right. Well, let me bring in uh, the rest of our uh, panelists today. We've got Kate Riga, as always. Hey, Kate. How are you? Hey, guys. I'm good. And joining us again is Matt Shuham, a reporter in our New York office. Hello, Matt. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, so Kate and Matt, I wanted to talk to both of you because you've been doing a lot of reporting lately about some of these skirmishes that have that have popped up around the country. As Josh alluded to, we had a violent incident in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It was protests kind of over a statue in the city. Is that right? And there was one person shot shot and killed is that right no but, um, he was not killed he was shot shot and injured yeah. uh we had like a biker gang in rural ohio that uh you know resulted in some arrests uh tell us matt or kate you know whoever wants to go first tell us kind of what you've been seeing out there uh why we have been tracking these incidents kind of what it tells us about sort of the broader i don't know situation as these protests continue and kind of evolve uh, yeah, well, um, Kate has been doing a ton of reporting about this. I can start with the um, New Mexico situation, which was uh, basically a, a, a protest, as we've seen over the country, over a statue of a historical figure that was uh, racist and repressive and murderous. Uh, Juan de Oñate, who was the first governor of New Mexico, um, brutal toward the indigenous uh, population of the state. Um, and Actually, another statue of him was removed elsewhere in New Mexico earlier that day. But this protest was uh, over in a monument in Albuquerque that featured a, uh, a statue of him. Um, there's a few other people in it as well. But um, well, basically, Matt, Matt, wasn't the first statue done like as a government action? As opposed to one of these things where people kind of get together yes. and just like yank it down? Right. That was, yeah, it was 
a crane or forklift came and, and whisked it off somewhere. The second one was not that. It was protesters taking a, a hammer to it and trying to pull it down. Um, much different situation. And also the New Mexico Civil Guard was there, which is um, an armed group with no actual law enforcement authority, but um, you know, LARPing as the National Guard, basically. And once the protesters started damaging um, the statue, uh, according to video and, and what authorities said afterwards, these armed guys stepped in between uh, the protesters and the statue, or at least they tried to. At that point, one man sort of shoved a protester to the ground. Then he was chased uh, by a few of these protesters. He was thrown to the ground. And at that point, he took out a gun and shot somebody um, who is uh, not dead, but was in critical condition, I believe, and is now uh, recovering. Um, but it follows a pattern um, that Kate and I have been working on across the country of one, an armed presence uh, by sort of right wing militia armed group types around the country, and also two, uh, sort of a broader fear about Antifa uh, or other groups sort of taking over your town. Um, so maybe Kate can address that part. But yes, the New Mexico situation was uh, heavily, heavily armed groups. And it's not sure if the, I'm not sure if the man who was arrested was actually a member, but he was sort of on their side. And this is what happens when you bring a bunch of guns to a, a protest as every now and then one of them goes I, off. I meant, I meant to ask this just in, before we, before we get to Kate, the, the, that was my question. Cause when, when I was sort of watching this as it un, unfolded on social media, kind of semi real time and the, you know, kind of for lack of a better word, defenders of right. the militia people, or at least, you know, the kind of the anti-protester types were saying that the guy who who shot the other guy wasn't actually a member of that militia group. You know, not that not that that necessarily matters. I mean, it's not even, as you said, it's not like a real thing. Right. They just decided. You know, <laughs> this is what they call their little gang. Um, is is there anything more there about uh, it? It seemed the guy who. The guy who shot the other guy was at least being kind of attacked when he shot someone. That's that's true as far as it goes, right? Right. They had sort of tackled him to the ground, and then he had sort of gotten a foot up, and he was getting himself up, and he had a weapon out, and then he shot one of the people that was pursuing him. Right. Now, now but you're saying here that the, the, the sort of the progression of events was basically that he, he shoved someone or kind of, you know, in this kind of confrontation. Yeah. Then other people kind of attack him. Mm -hmm. you know, push him down. And then his next step of escalation is pull out a gun and shoot one, presumably one of those people. That's more or less what happened. Right. There okay. was a reporter on the ground, uh, Megan Abundis of KOB4, who said he didn't seem, it didn't seem like he was part of the New Mexico Civil Guard group. They were all in fatigues and they had rifles and he was a guy in a blue t-shirt and had a weapon. Um, but she said he definitely agreed with them that the protesters should stay away from the statue. And once they started attacking it, he stepped in and, and threw some to the ground. He, it seems like he's sort of ideologically on their side. He ran for a city councilor position uh, in 2019 and did poorly. There was some research on the internet that 
I can't fully stand behind, but it seems like he's sort of a, a general sort of right winger, but it doesn't seem clear that he was involved with that that group. But key point that he he initi- initiated some level of violence and, and things kind of all like went from there. Yeah, he was shoving people, people. He got shoved back, basically. If, right. If people look at our coverage, there were, I link to a video. I says video taken by a witness shows a, a man shoving protesters. And you can see him. It's pretty violent, um, kind of dragging someone to the ground. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but the, the, it's across the country. Those sort of scuffles happen. And we saw it in, in Bethel, Ohio, where police aren't present or these armed groups or armed people sort of insert themselves into the situation. And the police already probably don't have, you know, enough de-escalation training, but certainly these groups that sort of just deputize themselves really um, make things worse a lot of the time. Right. Right. Kate, tell us more about the situation in Ohio. This is, like Matt mentioned, Bethel, Ohio. This is a small town, right? And there were mm-hmm. small protests over the weekend on Sunday, I want to say. And then, like, this bike, group of biker bikers just kind of, like, overran the whole thing. What what was mm-hmm. the deal there? Yeah, so Matt and I wrote about this. And basically, uh, Bethel is a village about 40 minutes outside of Cincinnati. And, you know, this group were, was planning, a, you know, a pretty seemingly modest protest, you know, at, at the peak, they were expecting maybe 100 people. They had been working in conjunction with the local police to, you know, plan where they were going to be. Um, and so, you know, all that was unfolding pretty, pretty normally. And then an hour or two before the protest, seemed that all these groups um, kind of caught wind of what was going to happen on social media and just descended on the area where they were planning the protest. So uh, according to village officials, there were soon 800 people there as opposed to the the 100 that were expected to turn out for the protest. Um, And a lot of those groups were uh, biker gangs. There was a lot of motorcycles there. And even at its peak, they'd only uh, put aside their six local police officers were supposed to be there. And then they had some deputies from a neighboring county who were um, on standby. And then apparently something else in the county happened just before this. Everyone, all but one police officer got taken away. And then suddenly you have this explosion of kind of counter, I don't even know if you call them counter protesters, but agitators, I guess, who uh, came. And like Matt was saying, when you don't have that, uh, you know, police enforced separation, there's just, there's bound to, you know, be physicality. And especially when you have these people kind of infiltrating who are angry and, you know, loud and and physical. So uh, the police said that they were investigating 10 uh, incidents from from that day. And um, Matt dug up a lot of eyewitness videos of, um, you know, some some, you know, fairly violent things, you know, punching, shoving, uh, things like that. And Everything kind of escalated. Um, the mayor put the city under curfew on Monday evening when it seems that protesters kind of came to to meet this to some degree. Um, and five people ended up being arrested that night, uh, four of them due to disorderly conduct after fighting and one of them uh, for being drunk and driving. So um, it's just that is an instance, I think, where I don't know if we've seen an example of that I haven't reported on it anyway where it's been so you know a peaceful protest has been so thoroughly infiltrated hijacked by people um you know who who were just kind of see the protesters as 
malicious or, you know, uh, a lot of this was stoked as well about uh, by Antifa rumors, which we've seen in a lot of stories that we've reported on this, even down to the verbiage of they're coming in in busloads, you know, from the nearby city. Um, so, yeah, this was definitely another one of those examples of um, kind of, you know, violence breaking out and, and in an event being really hijacked by people who were there to, you know, as the organizer said, to, you know, start stuff. Right. I know last week we obviously talked about this small town in Washington state where there was the the family camping and the whole right. Antifa scare. In this in this Ohio situation, do you have a sense of how that message was spread? Is it just social media kind of catches fire and people are like, get on your bike and, you know, dispatch down to Bethel or whatever, you know, is there, do you have a sense of how this kind of, how it got so out of control like that? It seems like social media was a big part of it. Um, and also uh, the village itself was, uh, had heard about these rumors and took some steps which seemed to sort of reinforce the rumors. Um, there was that, as Kate said, the second protest on Monday and we saw the same thing where people on Facebook were saying these busloads of Antifa are coming in, this doesn't have anything to do with Black Lives Matter. That got amplified through white, right-wing uh, Facebook groups. At a certain point, though, seeing a pattern of these things again and again, I do wonder what part of all that rumor mongering is just an excuse for people to show up and push uh, protesters around. Because the video, and people should check out our article, the video is very clear. These Black Lives Matter protesters are just standing around with signs. There was one instance where protesters arrived from you know a neighboring town and they were met as soon as they opened their car doors by armed sort of biker dudes who told them to get out of town and took their sign away. Uh, a Black Lives Matter protester being punched in the back of the head, you know, sucker punched in front of a police officer, just blatant violence. Um, and even if you believed that Antifa was coming to burn down this town, once you showed up, it was very clear that was not the case. I mean, there were less than a hundred, fewer than a hundred protesters. So at that point, if you start engaging in violence or hurling the N word, which happened all over this town, then uh, it's on you. And people just took the opportunity. And that's a point that I think we've been talking about when we've covered some of these stories that, you know, there's never any interrogation of the idea of why Antifa would want to come to these right. small places. They want you to know, take over it, Bethel, Ohio. Yeah, exactly. The, the village of Bethel. But it's, you know, it does seem to some degree that these people are itching to fight and to push back against this movement and you know, all they need is a, a Facebook post that says an ambiguous busload of some such sort are coming to town. So we better bring our guns and see what's going on. You know, one of the one of the things that I that that sort of jumps out at me is is we got an email here at TPM uh, sometime in the last week or so. I don't know exactly when, but but not in the last couple days. And this person asked, you know, we, we see over the last few years we see a lot of these, you know, kind of Charlottesville type things or Proud Boys, you know, hold a rally in some town. And there's been this ongoing stuff in Portland, Oregon, where it's almost become sort of like flypaper for both like the Proud Boys and Antifa, you know, kind of get together and rumble all the time. And this person was asking like, like, okay, you know, a lot of opportunities to rumble now. Where are the Proud Boys, right? Where where are these different groups? Where are the Charlottesville guys? Why don't, you know, 
are, wh- why aren't they like you know heading into DC to rumble and stuff? And this and this this guy was saying, it seems like you know when when it seems like there's a pretty good chance to get your ass kicked that these guys are pretty scarce, right? Aren't showing up. And obviously, we're seeing a few cases here where these people, if not necessarily the Proud Boys, you know, kind of Proud Boys esque, or you know, kind of Proud Boys wannabes, or the New Mexico Civil Guard or whatever. And I wonder if part of it is that now things are kind of calming down. And, you know, these instances that you're talking about aren't cases where you're in a, you know, in a big city and there are like tens of thousands of protesters and probably more of more than a few protesters who would be happy to get in a fight if someone tried to start a fight, right? If someone comes in and try to beat people up and stuff like that. Now, so th- this may just be happenstance, but it does seem like these people are coming out in cases where the number of protesters are pretty small, right? And and probably not anybody... Like, I, I have no doubt that in those first few days in Minneapolis, certainly some protesters were armed. You know, you only have to go to Fox News to kind of, you know, find pictures of them. But if I was protest, I mean, I'm not a a gun person, but, you know, you might want to be just to protect yourself or whatever. So it does seem kind of opportunistic at some level that these folks are kind of coming out of the woodwork now that things are calming down and you have more opportunity to basically show up and hassle maybe a few dozen people probably not probably not armed and and to be clear i mean the vast majority of the protesters clearly are not armed and certainly not using their weapons so that that i suspect that may be a a pattern and even in that case that was uh kate that you wrote about what i guess it must be at least a week week ago now in forks washington that little logging town up in um northwest washington that that was that was part of the you know kind of antifa invasion rumor thing but the people involved there didn't seem like they were part of any like white supremacist group it was just like the locals kind of stirred mm-hmm. up and you know to kind of defend their you know defend their right. town against against antifa one actually one trend that we've observed this time around as opposed to in police killings in the past is that Black Lives Matter protests are happening in really small towns. The uh, Bethel, Ohio organizer said she was inspired by a demonstration in Hazard, uh, Kentucky, which, uh, you know, a small town that wouldn't typically, maybe wouldn't typically have a big uh, racial justice demonstration after police killing several states away. but that is to the credit of the movement for black lives and for organizers for racial justice is that this time it's not just the big cities. It's that small towns across the country are seeing these uh, maybe just a few dozen people like we saw in Bethel. But as a result of that, um, there are all these towns who might not have organized Proud Boy chapters or armed groups, but just have a lot of conservative folks with a lot of guns. And maybe, you know, there's a motorcycle gang or uh, maybe there's a militia a couple cities away. And typically, you know, they might have to go to 
San Francisco or Seattle to get some of the action, but now they can stand around with their guns uh, five minutes away from their home. So all these new opportunities are popping up just due to the scope of these this wave of protests. And I think an, another factor of that dynamic is that these places that the armed people are showing up, you know, have smaller police forces by virtue of the fact that they're smaller places. So I think it also lets them wave this banner of, you know, we're just here to make sure the boys got it covered, you know, we're here to offer backup and that kind of crazy self-deputizing thing they do, um, which allows them to kind of slip in and then make more trouble for the local police. Right. All right. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. And Josh, like you mentioned at the top of the show, we are still in the middle of a pandemic. And even despite, you know, these large groups of protesters out in public, which even just a couple months ago would have been hard to imagine, you know, people in any sort of close proximity to each other. It doesn't seem like so far there's been evidence of a spike in in COVID cases from these, I guess, you know, there's the benefit of, of them mostly happening outside a lot of masks when there's, you know, large numbers of people. And those are all, those are all good ingredients for a, just kind of a safer gathering, I guess. But Josh, just before we uh, started recording, you put up a post on the site, uh, looking at the U.S.'s case numbers compared to Europe and, and even just the rest of the rest of the U.S. compared to New York. Um, when you look at the U.S. numbers with New York, uh, data incorporated, it kind of makes this situation look better, right? Um, than it otherwise would. And, you know, meanwhile, we have Vice President Mike Pence arguing in the Wall Street Journal, there's no second wave, you have Larry Kudlow, kind of going on the same tangent. And there's some debate as to whether even this first wave is over, right? I mean, we had the numbers, the graphs kind of look like a big spike in cases, uh, late winter, early spring, and it just has kind of plateaued, right? It hasn't been really going down much around the country. So tell us about uh, what you're kind of looking at, what you've been tracking, Josh. Yeah. One thing about the nationwide numbers is that, you know, the United States is a big country, big in population, very large, even relative to population and geography. So there's really not a U.S. outbreak. There's lots of regional outbreaks. They have different dimensions. They have different time spans and stuff like that. And it seems clear to me there really is not a second wave in the United States. That's not even, I don't think it's even really a question. What you have is a lot of areas that were largely unscathed in sort of the beginning of the outbreak are now either starting their first waves or accelerating the first waves that never really stopped, but were were much more minor, certainly compared to New York. And what I was looking at is that if you look at the trend in, you know, the the graphs in New York, you have a, you know, it's just a rocket ship, it goes straight up. And then it doesn't fall quite as fast, but it falls fairly, fairly quickly. And, And now in New York, New York has one of the lowest rates of transmission anywhere in the United States right now. It's really quite low, um, even in New York City, even more so out, you know, in, 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 in the rest of the state. And that, you know, the shape of that epidemic, it, it's pretty similar to what you see in Europe, not, not, indi- not just individual European countries, but the EU, all of Europe together. You know, again, the EU doesn't... Uh, it's not exactly, you know, geographic Europe, but pretty close. 
And so in both cases, you run up, you know, runs up, comes back down, and then goes to a pretty low level. The rest of, if you look at the the chart, the graph in the United States, it's pretty different, especially if you pull the New York numbers out. What you have is it runs up and then it's basically plateaued. It's come down a bit, but not much. It's basically just at a plateau. And what in in this uh, post I did this morning, I put the the Europe, the EU graph along with the US graph. And again, it's pretty stark. It, we know how bad it was in Italy, in Spain, in most of continental Europe. Now the rates are pretty low. That has not happened in the US. It has plateaued. Now, I think the basic reason is the federal response. Basically, since early May at the latest, the U, the federal government in the United States, embodied by President Trump and, and really heavily directed by him, has basically been, let's move on. This is, we're done with this. We don't want this is, we don't want to talk about this anymore. And that has been abetted by the fact that things have gotten dramatically better in the most hard hit states. And in a lot of the U.S., you know, people have died. There's been a lot. There's a, there was a, a real lockdown, but it hadn't really hit most of the U.S. in, in a big way. So that kind of, um, to some extent, allowed the federal government to kind of say, hey, we're, you know, we're, we got this. We're, we're moving on. It's, it's, you know, we've got plenty of ventilators. We don't have a shortage of masks anymore and all that kind of stuff. But you look at the numbers, and it clearly is is not done. It's it's continued, and and this has also been heavily driven by the fact that, as we know, largely all by himself, President Trump has managed to make masking and resistance to masking a badge of partisan identity in the United States. You know, you see these there there are. Um, there are cases in, in Texas I've seen where there are like some bars or restaurants where they say, don't bring a mask into our place. You know, like, like what? I mean, like, it's one thing, maybe you're not going to enforce it, but like you can't, like you won't let someone, you know, so it's, 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 it's made this very polarized thing. And there is a growing body of evidence that masking is a big deal, a big, big deal. Doesn't protect you totally individually, but at scale, it's a big deal. So why, you know, what is happening now? Why is it happening? Basically, the numbers are growing, and in some cases, growing pretty quickly, basically through the southern United States, and to a degree in the western, southwestern United States, particularly in the deep south. You're seeing it a lot in Texas, you're seeing it in Arizona, you're seeing it to other, you know, in the kind of uh, deep south states. And the one and in this post, what I try to look at is we know it is true. If you test more, you are going to find more cases. That is that is a given. That is true. And the federal government, you mentioned Mike Pence has said this a few times recently. Their line is like, look, you see the numbers going up, but that's because testing is going up. So it's really not, it's not moving, you know. We don't have another outbreak. Don't panic. Blah 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 blah. So what I what I try to look at is is that does that bear out when you look at the numbers in comparison to New York State and comparison and in comparison to Europe? And basically the answer is no. 
It doesn't. It doesn't bear out. If you look at uh, the U.S. today compared to continental Europe, the U.S. is doing more testing today. Not dramatically more, but but significantly more testing. If you look at it cumulatively, it's not the case. The the amount of testing that they have done in say Italy or France or Spain is about what we've we've done in the United States. And the difference there seems to be that we're continuing to increase it because our epidemic is increasing. And they have maybe pulled back a little because they're, you know, they don't have a lot of COVID there anymore. And where you really see this as the case is when you look at the percentage of positive tests coming back, which is on its own in isolation, not necessarily determinative, but in the context of other numbers, it's very telling. Uh, you know, hypothetically, if you just went to some place that had no COVID and did all your testing there, yeah, you'd get a low percentage, but that's obviously not what's happening. Across the United States now, tests are coming back about 5 or 6% positive. In New York State, there is about twice the rate of testing that there is in the rest of the United States. And in New York State, the percentage is about exactly 1%. So New York is testing a lot more than anywhere else. And the rate of positive tests coming back is very, very low. If you look in, in Europe, in the big places that had outbreaks, Spain, Italy, less than 1%. So it's pretty clear our epidemic is at least plateaued and in a lot of parts of the country growing or maybe even growing very quickly. Now, the one thing that doesn't quite fit the model that I've just described is the fatality numbers. Fatalities are going down in the U.S. And you look at all the different numbers and it's not totally clear how those two facts, you know, stable numbers of, of, of cases and, and, and declining fatalities match up. Some of it could be that maybe, despite all the, you know, the kind of the data points I just mentioned, that, the, that some of it is greater testing. But again, lots of evidence that that's not the case. Some of it could be the standard of care is evolving. It would not be surprising that after three or four months, doctors just know more about how to treat COVID and, to, and, and prevent you from, you know, uh, decompensating and, and, and dying, even though there's no vaccine and no cure per se. That's part of it. Some of it might be that in some parts of the country, they're not capturing all the fatalities. We don't really know. But but the big picture is that I think we are seeing the effects of President Trump's intense desire to say, we're done with this and to move on and to start talking about the reopening and the beautiful reopening and the successful reopening. Transitioning to greatness. Transitioning to greatness. <laughs> and... We've just kind of collectively as a society and certainly embodied in our government just kind of decided, all right, we're done. We're done with this. We did it for three months and we're done. And I think a piece of that too, that feeling of being done with it is can be traced back to the, the federal inaction that it's like, okay, so what? We stay under basically house arrest for another two months and, you know, no one has ever given us a plan of like, you know, you guys stay home for three months. In that time, we're going to X, Y, and Z to enable a safer reopening. You know, it's like the way it's been bungled is just kind of shocking because 
now, you know, in DC, we're reopening and I don't really know what's different. Cases went down after we were home. Like there are more, like you said, Josh, there's more testing capacity now, but it's not like there's more hospital bed capacity than there was before. Not like this disease is less infectious than it was before. It just seems like, you know, everyone kind of made the collective social sacrifice to stay home for months. And now we're going back out into a world that isn't that different from the one that we went inside to avoid in the first place. I mean, the key, the key is that in Europe, they have been able largely to reopen and not have numbers go up. You know, little, you know, there's some stuff at the margins. Um, and and that, that really kind of tells the story that if you have a robust mitigation plan, you can do it. And, and, you know, from that perspective, the difference is, you know, it first hits, it's already out of control before you even know it started. And you just need to kind of, you know, it's like putting a blanket on someone on fire. You just need to get the fire under control and, and to, to kind of break that curve down. Everybody's got to stay home and you lock down for some period of time. And the, the concept at least is, as you said, you ramp up testing, you get in place all the stuff you didn't have on round one. You come up with some mitigation strategies, and it seems, again, seems like masking is a pretty key part of the equation. Obviously, there's other things like just, you know, just basic social distancing, washing your hands, you know, kind of uh, not having concerts and, and, and stuff like that. And it really tells the story that it is not it, you know, we can talk about, you know, kind of freedom from masks. It's masks and the, and the things that go along with masks that in theory, and in Europe at least, in, a, in effect, allows you to go back to living your life. And, and largely, we have not done that in, in the U.S., at least not, not enough. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I don't know if this is the, I don't know if this is, widespread or not someone told me a few days ago that or maybe yesterday or something like that that they had been to a bunch of protests in the in the new york area you know over the last couple weeks or something like that and at those at those protests almost everybody at least most of the people were were uh wearing masks and a lot of the event or you know the protest organizers were actually giving out masks so a lot of masking and we we are starting to get some preliminary data now that there do not seem to have been spikes in, you know, we're talking about growing, you know, case counts, but it's not in the areas that had the biggest protests and the, and the areas with the biggest protest, which tended to be relatively hard hit areas have not seen, not seen a spike. In any case, this person said, you know, lots of masking at the protests, but then they were just kind of down in the East Village and other parts of the city. And people at the bars not wearing, you know, so not not wearing the masks. And uh, you can definitely tell kind of a morality tale there. But I suspect what it is to a certain level counter to some of what we hear from the sort of the, the right wing commentary. Protesting is an inherently social and solidaristic act. You're not doing it for yourself. I mean, some people may be doing it more for themselves than others, but it is, even if you are um, a young African-American man, it is a social thing. 
So it's possible that when you are protesting, you are just more in the mind of the collective good than you are when you're like hitting the bar and nothing wrong with hitting the bars, right? I mean, everybody wants to do that. We all miss that. But I'm curious whether that is a widespread difference and if that's why. Yeah, that's a good point. I will say, I mean, I wanted to touch on the mask issue a little bit with everyone too. And I've just noticed around Brooklyn, I haven't, I've only been to the protest kind of as an observer, kind of on the periphery. Um, but I have seen a lot of masks and in the protests, but I have seen a decrease in masks, just kind of people out and about on the streets as the weather has warmed up. Kate, I'm curious how it is in DC too. I mean, when it's hot and humid out and you've got half of your face covered with a thick piece of cloth, it's pretty freaking uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I do kind of worry or I wonder, you know, as the summer stretches on, as the weather continues to get warmer, if we're just going to see more and more people shedding the masks because, you know, it feels like the evidence suggests if you're outside, you're basically safer to begin with. Um, I don't know. Is that your sense in D.C., Kate? Is that your sense, Matt, where you are in Brooklyn or, you know, Josh, that you've seen? Or have you seen a decrease in masks? Have you noticed any difference or kind of what's your sense of that? Yeah, I mean, I was at uh, like a solid week of protests and I would say, you know, I would venture a guess of like 90 percent of people were wearing masks. And there were also people deputized with these big spray bottles of hand sanitizer who came through the crowd like, every 10 minutes, you know, kind of just like people's hands. Um, so I think that point, Josh, is definitely true that kind of everybody wants a, a role and a way to contribute and people deputize themselves to be mask hand routers, hand sanitizer, stuff like that. But um, on general mask use, this is just anecdotal, but it seems to me that from the get-go, there's been uh, less consistent mask wearing here than in like New York. I know just from our conversations that you kind of got sideways looks, you know, if you went out in New York without a mask. And I would say that has never been true here. Inside people are wearing masks, but outside it's been a solid 50-50 kind of since the pandemic really revved up. Um, I would say I haven't, I haven't really seen a change one way or the other, but you know, we've still only had two or three days of the humid, swampy DC summer so far. So, you know, that could it feels change. like the the new mask, the new mask technique is to have it under your chin yep. <laughs> and then you pull it up when you pass someone. So this sort of half on half off seems to be the kind of consensus um, yeah, it's the, style, the style of wearing it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when I go, when I, when I, uh, you know, drive around, I mean, um, very early on in the epidemic, uh, some friends of ours were, were generous enough to, to uh, let us basically uh, let us stay in a, in a, in a cottage um, out in, you know, kind of about an hour outside the city. So uh, th- that's where we've been. So, you know, I, I have not been in New York City since, you know, pretty early on in, in the epidemic. So my experience has been, you know, different in that sense. Uh, and one of the things I've I've done a lot of is I just go on drives, right? To get to sort of (laughs) not lose my mind, right? Kind of in, in a, in a, in a, in a confined space. And, um, I think there's pretty, pretty widespread mask wearing here. You know, I certainly do it that when I'm driving, I kind of pull it down over my face. It doesn't, you know, it's not helping anybody in a car when I'm only one in the car. I put it on when I get out. I mean, one of the things that I'm, 
that I was always very struck by early on before I sort of understood what seems like the, the actual effectiveness of masks is that very early in the outbreak, when, when it was still just a reality in, um, you know, in China and, and in East Asia, we, would get, we were getting a lot of emails from expats uh, who, who live there, you know, English, English speakers and, 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 and readers. And, and one of the consistent points these people made, certainly in China, in, in Wuhan, in Shanghai, in all, these, in, in all these areas, that if you went outside the house without a mask, everybody's looking like, dude, what the fuck are you, th-? you know, kind of just like freaking out, right? And, and a, 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 an intense, like, social peer pressure effect. Like, it's just not okay. Like, what are you thinking? And I think early on, many people in the West, before we kind of got religion on masking, that the idea was that it was a social signal, basically, of, of your saying, hey, I take this seriously. I, I take my health seriously. I take your health seriously. And I'm sort of demonstrating that by wearing a mask. And so when you see someone without a mask, you everybody thinks, oh, you know, you don't take this seriously. You're a danger to me. Everybody kind of freaks out. And um, we, we now know that, or we think we know, that it's not just that, that it actually is helping, you know, prevent spread at some level. But... Um, I think there's some level of that where I am in New York, which again is about an hour, give or take, outside of New York City. You know, you, people, everybody, everybody, when they are kind of in proximity of other people, even if it's not within six feet, you put on a mask. When I see someone who doesn't, I'm sort of, I'm sort of like, 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 what are you, what, what are you thinking? And that's kind of like, it almost feels like a little aggressive. Like, are you trying to make a point? You know, because especially with the way that Trump has politicized it, um, you know, rightly or wrongly, one of the things that I think of is like, oh, are you like, are you are you trying to make a point? Are you kind of, you know, kind of like a MAGA, you know, badass? You're not going to you're not going to like be a sheep like us and wear a mask. So there is all this kind of stuff. And and you can sort of see how that is one of the things that I wrote in this post that I published this morning is that. In in March and April and into early May, obviously COVID hit New York like a like a hurricane and was just devastating. And it hit to a lesser degree in other parts of the country. But most of the country was only sort of, you know, grazed in that period. And it's just human nature that people in those areas are gonna kind of feel invulnerable. It's not our reality. We're not gonna wear a mask just because you guys are like, you know getting getting slaughtered in 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 New York and i think that the public messaging from the federal government indulged that not just by kind of this sort of i'm not going to wear a mask stuff but just like you know kind of hey sucked in New York but not so bad in Alabama not our problem um, i think didn't that even had an effect didn't even anthony fauci maybe yesterday or pretty pretty recently sometime in the last day or two um had had admitted that the federal government discouraged mask wearing early on, not because it wasn't effective, but because they wanted to keep masks for the healthcare professionals, right? And that, um, you know, they've obviously changed the guidance now to encourage wearing cloth face coverings and things like that. But yeah, even just early on, it was sort of hard to get a read on 
should yeah, I be masking it, or, it's, or not? It's funny because at least my understanding, it, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that the CDC and the World Health Organizations take before COVID was that people who are not obviously sick, where it just, it's not effective and there's no reason to do it. Um, and that obviously got, so I don't think, I, I don't think it was just, hey, we need the masks. Let's just tell everybody it doesn't matter. So they're not going to hoard masks. I think that outside of East Asia, people just didn't, the sort of the, the authorities, you know, and the experts just didn't really think masks were a thing. It's sort of just just kind of, uh, you know, old wives tale or something like that. Um, and they had a generally a kind of a, you know, condescending attitude towards the practice in East Asia. Of kind of like, oh, you see these people, it's a social signal. I mean, it doesn't hurt, you know, doesn't hurt anybody, but it doesn't really, you know, not really effective. And one of the things that, and you even see that now. Even there, there are a, a non-trivial number of epidemiologists who are still kind of fighting like a rearguard battle that there's no definitive evidence, which is true as far as it goes, but sort of like, dude, are we going to wait for the study for 10 years? And, you know, kind of like, it's pretty easy to do. So like, you know, like, uh, to paraphrase Donald Trump, what do you have to lose, right? Um, but uh, that did get mixed up with this we need them for the healthcare workers, which was clearly the case. They needed them more than the public needed them. And I think it was how those two things kind of got mixed together in a way that was maybe intentionally not really leveling with the public. Uh, so at a, at a certain point, it became more clear that they were effective. And it would have made sense to say, hey, ideally, everyone would have an N95 mask. We don't have enough the healthcare workers deserve them first. So do what you can. Wear a cloth mask. It helps. That was the better message. And, and they were all kind of slow in, in getting there. Yeah. Just a point on, on the culture of this, by the way. Um, we reported a month ago that there was a meme going around that it was a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act to force people to wear a mask. Uh, and so even a month ago and even earlier than that, um, there were all these various pretextual, you know, pretextual reasons of like, uh, well, uh, it goes against my freedoms as an American for you to force me to do anything, which goes to the type of uh, culture that the president has uh, um, encouraged. But it's not just a cultural thing. Um, it, it's gone into policy as well. For example, in Arizona, they've reopened without any rules about mask wearing. You know, in New York, there, there, there are rules from the governor and from the mayor that if you don't wear a mask within six feet, you're, you're breaking the rules. In Arizona, there's no rule on that. In Texas, not only is there no rule on that, there's actually a rule against localities forcing masks. So I'm reading from NPR now, um, the mayors of several cities on Tuesday, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, Fort Worth, El Paso, sent a letter to the governor asking for the authority locally 
to set rules and regulations on the use of face coverings. What Governor Abbott has done in Texas is said, um, sure, masks help, but we're going to outlaw localities from forcing you to wear them. So it's not just that it's this macho thing where if I cover my mouth, I'm weak and I'm scared. It's also that in the states that are opening and that are being so hard hit um, by recent spikes in COVID, there's there are bureaucratic um, obstacles to actually doing what would be the logical thing from a public health right. perspective. It's funny you never heard you never heard those protests about no no shirt no shoes no service. Yeah, kind of thing either, right? exactly. <laughs> one of, one of the interesting things about that in a state like Texas, and you see this more broadly across the country, is that Texas and to a great extent the United States right now is being governed by the rural areas and outer suburbs. Right, the political power is rooted there now. So you have this kind of perverse situation where the as yet relatively unhit conservative areas are trying to dictate what the cities do to 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 defend themselves and keep their own inhabitants. Florida to that to that list. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really pretty striking. I mean, again, it's it's one before we got to where we are right now. I did think, and I still think to a certain extent this is true, there, there is, the reality is, at least in March, April, May, it's not the same everywhere. And it is kind of true. Do they really need to go around wearing masks in Idaho just because we're getting brutalized in the Northeast, right? Okay, well, it's, it's, it's different. Um, obviously, maybe not different for long, but um, you, it it gets to a different level where, again, basically the rural areas for ideological reasons are like preventing the cities for doing things that clearly are pretty necessary in the cities. Yeah. All right. I think that's all the time we have today. Okay. Well, remember, if, if that's really all the time, remember Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is the sponsor of the Josh Marshall Podcast. You can order it at Grady'sColdBrew.com. You can get 20% off your first order if you use the coupon code or offer code TPM. And you can also uh, buy it at your local grocery store as long as you do all this uh, uh, six feet social social distancing and mask wearing and all that kind of stuff, or you can order it at amazon.com. I will say brew, cold brewing coffee is basically the easiest way to make coffee. If you can turn on your sink faucet, you can, you can do it. Basically, well, and, so. it's, and, and with the, with the system they have, you don't even need like the little maker that you, which is basically just sort of like a jar. Um, right. But exactly. you don't even need that. It comes with like a bag and you just fill the bag up and you're good to go. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, next next week we'll report on our home brewing efforts. Uh, <laughs> yes. Once yes. We, everybody. Once everybody should show up with a with a with a cup of Grady's. Uh, yeah. Next all right. Week. That sounds good. All right. All right. Good to talk to you all. Later, folks. Thank Take you care. Guys. Bye. Yeah.